there's a lesson that I am somewhat hard to learn. It is whenever you pray for things, they might actually happen. And they sometimes happen quicker and differently than you might expect. Yesterday, we celebrated the, the Vigil Mass for the Nativity of our Lord, and so we're reflecting this weekend on the third joyful mystery, the Nativity. The fruit of that mystery is a spirit of poverty. And so, we invited our, ourselves to, uh, to take up that spirit of poverty. And last night, I went to the rectory, microwaved my dinner, and in the middle of my dinner, the power went out. Thank you, Lord, for the poverty. Be careful what you pray for. It just might happen in ways you don't always expect, that being one simple, uh, simple case of it. And thanks be to God, I was able to, to recognize it for what it was and, and embrace it as a little opportunity to join our blessed Lord there. But as we come on this feast, we, again, we celebrate this, this feast, which is indeed um, a time of great joy. It's a time of great solemnity where we break out the best of the best of things. We down today the, the finest vestments the parish owns. We, we place the extra flowers all around the sanctuary, just you know, pretty much everywhere, everywhere we don't immediately walk. There we have placed flowers there. Uh, many of you have, have drawn you dressed in your nicest clothes and probably your most expensive coat, which is also known as your thickest coat on account of the weather. And so these realities is, is that we've, we, we go to great expense to be able to decorate for this great feast. And it's proper for us to do so, because what we celebrate is the birth of a king. It is something that all of the kingdom should rejoice in. Indeed, everyone should be filled with an immense joy in this great feast. Fascinatingly enough, the third mystery in each of the sets of mysteries deals explicitly with kingship. The first one, which we reflect upon today, is the birth of the king. The luminous mysteries is the proclamation of the kingdom. The sorrowful mysteries is the crowning of our great king, crowning with thorns, but a coronation nonetheless. And lastly, we may understand it as the glorious mysteries, the descent of the Holy Spirit upon the apostles, as the apostles themselves are crowned with the Holy Spirit, who comes in tongues of fire to rest upon their heads, that they too might be inheritors of that mission of proclaiming the kingdom and to participate in the kingship of Christ as they exercise authority in the church. And so this third mystery in each set reflects upon this great greatness of kingship. And perhaps when we think of kings, we may think of a whole variety of things. I myself will think of various scenes from movies, especially kind of often caricatures of kings who will be sitting at their table dressed in fine robes and have gold goblets surrounding them with fine wines and a whole bird cooked in front of them because why settle for only the leg quarters, huh? When you're the king, you get the whole bird. You, know, just, you could just allow the meat to fall off wherever you want because you have so much of it, you can, you can waste as much as you like and it's not a big deal, right? And so the king always just kind of and has, you know, extra chicken juice just kind of running down his chin because he's just lavish, you know, lavish portions for himself, right? Those kind of caricatures that we might have of kings. But nonetheless, even if that's a caricature, there is a, a sense in which whenever we think of kings, we rightly understand them to be of nobility, of, of a higher class, of possessing great things, of possessing great riches, of having great authority, of being born in a palace, you know, when in the, you know, the, 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 the celebration, when a child is born, when the newborn king, when the inheritor of the throne is born, that the kingdom again rejoices. They make great fanfare about these things. And yet in the face of all of those, 
ideas which we have a kingship, our blessed Lord comes in the exact opposite. Rather than in great solemnity and in riches, our Lord comes simply in poverty. The Lord Jesus comes as a poor one. Indeed, Mary and Joseph are on their way to pay their census tax. This is essentially what the census was. It was, it was an opportunity of, of the foreign occupying Rome to be able to, to gather in a bit more of a collection and to be able to, to say, go to your own hometown to let us know how many of you are, uh, to know, let us know where you are, who you are, what you are, and to be able to give us money on account of all of these things so we can process the information. And so Mary and Joseph, poor ones though they may be, are going to be able to give away even more of the little that they have. And they go to the town of Bethlehem, from the city of David, the, town of, the little town of bread, the house of bread as it's known. <coughs> Excuse me. And so they go to this little place where our blessed Lord is born, where the word of God is born of the Virgin Mary. And the scriptures recount that it is that the child, that there was no place in the inn. And so he's born and he's lying in swaddling clothes in the manger. Our tour guide on our, on our pilgrimage spent a no small amount of time uh, going on a little mini tirade about the translation in the end. He said, you know, he's, you know, he's kind of talking, he's a British fellow talking to a group of Americans. And he says, you know, so he says, I, I think you, you, you Americans sometimes imagine that, you know, that, that our, our blessed Lord, when, when, you know, when, when he was there, that... Um, that he was just, they were, that Mary and Joseph were walking along and, and the hotel, the, the Bethlehem Six, forgot to leave the candle on and there was no vacancy in the inn that night and so they, they needed to go to the next hotel and you know, the next motel and, and they were all full up and so they just found a cave and just kind of made do with what they had. And he said, that doesn't really match with the reality of the situation. First of all, there wasn't really a, a motel, so to speak, um, in Bethlehem and the reality was that the place where they would stay, the, the translation of the text, better than in the end, would be more essentially closer to in the cellar. It would be downstairs, more or less. And even we would, as we were going to these different sites, the different uh, kind of ruins of, of homes uh, from the time of our Lord, he was showing us these things, that in each of these places, the, the bottom level was a place, as we as mentioned previously with the Annunciation, it was a place of storage of foods, it was, if there was a workshop in the house, it was, it was often on the bottom floor where the workshop would be. It's where you would have the, you know, you'd be cooking things down there. And if it was cold, such as on December 25th, it might be a good place to bring in the animals, to have them rest, and to be able to bring their food in so that they could have a place to be able to still eat, even and, um, to be able to stay warm. On the second level, at the top of the house, there not a second step, not a second floor as we might think of it, but kind of an elevated portion of the house, there would be a ladder that would go usually to two rooms, one for the, for the owners of the house, the mother and father, and the other room for all the children. And whenever the children cleared out of the house, it, the second room became a guest room. And so whenever people would come to town, such as for census and, and various other visits, that one would stay in the guest room. But the simple fact is, if this is taking place and it's a, something that's required of everyone, it is very likely that St. That Joseph and our Blessed Mother were a bit farther away than some of the other relatives. And so they got there and the guest room was full. Sorry, we don't have a bed for you. And all of us knows well, either by experience personally or by our own back or by offering it to others, that when there's no more beds in the house, when there's no more guest room, 
you offer something to the effect of, but I have an air mattress, right? We'll find a spot. I don't have a bed for you, but we've got some room in the living room. We'll clear out a space. We'll put you on the floor. We'll make, it, we'll make the best we can. It'll be as good as we can make it, right? This is essentially what Mary and Joseph experienced, is there wasn't a guest room. There wasn't place for them in the home of their ancestors, of, Dave, of, of, uh, of Joseph's ancestors, of his family that was still there in Bethlehem. And so they simply made a place for them in their home on the lower level. And so it makes sense that he is born in the ordinary things, there among the animals with the ox and the ass, bowing in, in, in their veneration as often seen in a crash. And so we have this gift that our Lord is born in this simple, ordinary home, on the lower level, not even the nicer bed, but simply there on the floor in the storage area, the place where normal work would be done. It's in that place that our Lord was born for us. And the poverty of our Lord and St. Joseph and our Blessed Mother is not the only thing that marks this great mystery of the nativity of the Lord. We know also that, that it is to the poor ones that the gospel is first given, to the shepherds who were the ones who lived out in the fields, who didn't necessarily even have homes. They would just stay under the rocks and in the caves. We had the pleasure of offering, the, offering mass in one of those caves, looking over, as, you know, in the, in the caves in the field where the shepherds, where the angel appeared to them to be able to look out over Bethlehem, a blessing to be able to offer mass in that little place. And it was there in that little field that the shepherds, who were the, of the lower class of the Jews, that they were the first ones to receive the message from the angel and the good news with great joy that a Savior had been born for the world. In addition to them, we know that the Magi were shortly behind them. The Magi, these men who are presumably nobility or wise men from the East who come, and yet they too are also lowly ones, the poor ones in the view of the Jewish people. They were ones who were of not, not of Jewish origin. And so for the Jewish people, everyone who was not of Jewish origin was de facto below them. We hear them in various places described as as dogs in the scriptures, right? Uh, so they're not, not, pleasant, uh, not a pleasant view of the Gentile peoples. And it's to them also that this great mystery is revealed. So to the poor ones, the gospel is first given, of the news of a savior. It is for us to understand and to recognize that, that whoever we might be, the gospel applies to us, but especially to those who are most in need of it, to the poorest of the poor, the gospel belongs by right to the greatest extent. We too are called to embrace this spirit of poverty as the mystery of the rosary indicates, to embrace this simplicity of life. And the Church of the Nativity itself speaks something to this. The Church of the Nativity is a beautiful, a beautiful building. The church initially was built, the first, the first Christian church was built on that site in the mid-300s. And it was a church that was built by St. Helena whenever she went to the Holy Land and started kind of trying to preserve the holy sites. And interestingly, the reason it was preserved and the reason they know that that is the place where our Lord was born is because the pagans preached that gospel continuously. They actually had built a pagan temple on top of the place where the Lord was born as a way of mocking the Lord, as, as a way of mocking Christianity, as a way of saying, ha-ha, we are victorious. Look, we've put a pagan temple on top of the place where you say your God was born. But of course, we have the last laugh because we know that their gods are false. They are no gods at all. Their temple fell to pieces and the end was torn down. 
and the pagans who for some 350 years were the ones to carry the message that this is where your Jesus was born, we come in and build a church exactly there again, except not a pagan one, one devoted to the Savior who was born in that sacred spot. And whenever one enters into the church, there is a small door that one has to enter by. It used to be large. You see, the church in the 300s was torn down a couple of centuries later, and one built was much larger to be able to fit the large crowds that were starting to gather to this holy place. And initially, the door was a large, a large pointed arch, but the door was brought down, and the arch filled in, and then it brought down again, and then a step built into it. Because part of the issue was that with these large doorways, um, people's animals were walking into the church. And so you'd be there in the midst of the holy mass and the holy site where the Lord of all creation was born. And here comes a camel walking through, the, walking through mass, right? Kind of a bit of an interruption. Additionally, people would bring their carts along with them and use the church as a nice place out of the, out of the rain to sell their wares or sometimes simply to go take things out of the church as there were many votive candles and votive, votive lamps, gold lamps that were in the place. And so sometimes people would be tempted to help themselves to them and to steal from the holy house. And so to remedy both of these, the doorway was brought down. So it's about four and a half feet now, I think. And there's a step on the ground so you can't bring a cart in. But part of that symbolically, so practically we understand these things, but symbolically we have to understand that we have to leave things behind to be able to go through the door. We have to bend the knees. We have to bow our head to be able to enter even into the home, even into this house of God, which is the dwelling place of the Lord, where he himself was born for us. We literally have to make oneself small and to leave something behind if one was carrying a large load. And then whenever, when, when one does so, one enters into the temple of God, enters into this holy place, and is able to go to the back of the church and there to descend more steps, to go down again once more, to descend as our Lord condescended and came down to us, stripping himself of his glory. And one goes to the bottom of there, and there under an altar where you have to bend down and kneel down on your knees to be able to reach back, there's a silver star shining like Bethlehem's star with the radiance of the votive candles all surrounding it and the images, the icons on the back of the, on the, back of the wall under the altar and the simple, simple words etched into the silver star, Hic de Virgine Maria, Jesus Christus Natus Est. Here of the Virgin Mary, Jesus Christ is born. It's a beautiful place. And again, the poverty that one has to experience in spirit to be able to enter in ought not to be lost upon one who goes. It is something that one feels tangibly with their legs, with their knees, and if you don't bow your head long enough as you're passing through the door, with the top of your head. It is poverty that our Lord embraced, and it is poverty that he calls us to as well. Interestingly enough, that church, the church that was built in the, in the, seventh, in the sixth century, I believe, was one that was actually preserved. It shouldn't be there. It's the oldest of the churches. That church that was built 1,500 years ago remains today. And interestingly, it's because just as the pagans were the ones who for the first 350 years preserved the, the, the truth of the gospel that this is where our Lord was born, it was also pagans who were the ones to preserve the church. You see, on the front of the, of the church, in the facade, there was a large mosaic of the three magi, the three wise men, Persian men who had come from the east to honor the Lord. 
And the Persians were conquering the Holy Land around, around the 600s. And passing through, they destroyed just about every church they could find, tore it down to the foundations. And then when they came to the Church of the Nativity, they looked at the front of the church, saw men who looked like themselves. And out of veneration for their ancestors who had traveled to that spot, they left the church untouched and moved on. So because of the three magi, the gospel was proclaimed at the beginning, but that church was preserved 600 years later because of those men, ones who were not Christians to begin with, still yet proclaiming the gospel quietly by their own witness. It's a wonderful gift the church is. Again, this invitation to celebrate this holy feast and to strip ourselves of our own glory in imitation of our Lord who stripped himself of his. To simplify our lives sometimes, to detach from things of the world, sometimes to detox from the things of the world more appropriately, but above all, to offer gratitude to God. Because all the gifts that we receive come from the hand of him who has made them. You see, the reality is that that as we possess things, as we have honors, as we come to to have whatever thing it might be that we experience in this life, whatever blessings may come to us, a temptation is to forget the Lord who gave them to us, to begin to attribute them to ourselves, to our own strength, to our own wit, to our own hard work, to our own whatever the case may be. But to embrace the spirit of poverty is to constantly keep before our eyes in some concrete manner, as well as in spiritual form, the fact that we have an absolute need of God. We need Him. And while we may settle sometimes for other things, things that may bring happiness to the heart for a brief moment, in the end there is only one thing that brings joy, and it is the person of Christ. It is Him that we must seek, and Him that we must possess within our own hearts. There's a couple of windows in this church that I have a particular affection for that I look at most frequently, one of which you can't see, most of you sitting in the seats that you are. It's right there. It's our Blessed Mother. She's facing this direction. So if you ever want to see her, walk around, come visit the Nativity after Mass, come visit the creche, honor our Blessed Lord in the Nativity, and turn around and see Our Lady. She's radiant with beauty. And I love the image. Oftentimes, celebrating our morning masses or evening masses, uh, the sunlight will be brightening or, or it'll be just coming into her or, or just uh, the sun just setting um, with our Blessed Mother, just kind of the, the, the dawn from on high, the, the morning star who comes to, to let us know that Christ is near to us. I love the image of our Blessed Mother in this window. And the second one is the, the one far in the back of the church next to the confessional, the one back there to my left, your right. And it's the window I've spoken of before about St. Thomas Aquinas. But the message of that window is very much the message of this mystery. It's the story of St. Thomas Aquinas embodied in the glass there. St. Thomas, a great philosopher, a great theologian, one of the greatest minds the world has ever seen, having written numerous works that have inspired countless saints of the church, as well as ordinary faithful all throughout the centuries for 800 years since then, At the end of his earthly life, our blessed Lord appeared to him and he said, Thomas, you have written well of me. What would you have in return? And Thomas simply replied, Nil nisi te domine. Nothing but you, Lord. Nothing but you. This is what the spirit of poverty invites us to. 
Indeed, our hearts can long for many things in this world. We can possess many gifts, and we can rejoice in them. It's not to say that all of us should live as Francis of Assisi and strip off all of our garments and live in absolute poverty. Some may be called to this, indeed. But for all of us, it's the spirit of poverty that we are called to embrace. The poverty of Christ, of Our Lady, of St. Joseph, and of countless saints of the century. A willingness to be able to look to the things of the world and to realize that if I possess all the things of the world, but I, if I have not Christ, I have nothing. But if I have Christ and nothing else in the world, I have everything that I need. May God grant us this grace this Christmas to be able to embrace the spirit of poverty, to allow our lives to be simplified, to fill our hearts with gratitude to the Lord who gives us so many generous gifts, but to desire above all the singular gift of Christ who was born for us this holy day.